Welcome to Liquidity. This is Doug Clinton from Loop Ventures. I'm joined by Gene Munster, another partner at Loop Ventures. And as always, we are talking about all things venture liquidity related, including unicorn financings, IPOs, direct listings, secondaries, and anything related to those topics. And so we have three main subjects on the docket for today, Gene. The first is the news about DoorDash considering a direct listing. Second is PayPal recently acquiring Honey for $4 billion, great venture exit. And third, one password took $200 million in funding from Excel. It was its first round of funding, a 14-year-old company. So we'll touch on each of those, but let's talk about DoorDash first. News came out earlier this week that like many late-stage unicorn companies, they are kicking around what a direct listing might look like for them. So Gene, do you think DoorDash is a good direct listing candidate? I do. And I think that's going to be in the minority. Most people would view the direct listings opportunity as more for companies that are the most established. If you think of like Spotify, for example, or Airbnb is considering doing this. And so the conversation tends to be that DoorDash is kind of on the bubble, whether it has enough pull in the marketplace to do this without the full support of investment banks. And I think that ultimately it will. And the reason is that this movement, I guess, towards direct listings, it actually seems to be having some follow-through. We think about uh, different conferences that we've attended and heard a lot of talk about it over the past year. And it feels like it is the A topic. And I suspect that the more companies that do it, the easier it is for companies that aren't the mega unicorns to get out there. And so I think that DoorDash, I think its last round was at, was it $14 billion, something like that? That's right. Yeah. Around 14. I think that there's enough meat there for this. It's a great candidate. And last piece I'd add is it gets me really excited about the drug listing movement because it's kind of moving, I think, down the spectrum in terms of the size of the companies that are entertaining doing this. One of the concerns I have is that you know, we've seen this continued talk about the move to profitability in these public companies, Lyft, Uber, both talked about it. And I think right now, DoorDash falls more on the side of growth focus versus profitability focus. If they do a direct listing, do you think that they're going to need to change sort of philosophically how they are thinking about burning cash and maybe take the approach of Lyft and Uber and talk more about their road to generating profit versus this land grab that they're in with you know the other handful of companies like Postmates and Grubhub? But do they need to talk more about profitability to pull this off? Simple answer is yes. When we think about should they consider a direct listing, I think big levers to it. Does it have enough of brand to be able to reach the public markets through this vehicle? And I think the answer in DoorDash's case, it's smaller, but it does have enough substance to it to do that. Then there's the question about What's the best thing to create value that public investors will embrace? And you know, this has been a well-detailed journey for late-stage companies trying to better understand what the public investors want. And you talked about the most important examples there. And I think that, yes, they will have to make some measurable changes to what their path to profitability looks like and have enough substance around that path. 
in terms of the plan for them to be a successful direct listing. They've got the one piece done, which is they built a big enough business to access. Now it's up to getting the model to a point where it's going to actually appeal to public investors. And the good news for DoorDash is that over the last uh, nine months, that road has been well-traveled. And I think they're in a much better place to be successful from the learnings of Lyft and Uber and WeWork. Bringing up the idea of how can they sort of create a listing or an offering that generates value for public investors is a really important topic. And as I think about their business and being in the sort of growth mode still now and probably will be for the next year, two years at least. They just raised $100 million that was announced from T. Rowe Price just a few months ago, I think. And obviously, I mean, $100 million is not enough capital for them to do a direct listing and then continue to fund their business. So at some point, they're going to have to figure out how to raise money in conjunction with this direct listing. We know that today there's no solution to raise capital as part of a direct listing. You can only really do that with an IPO right now. But I think we're going to have to keep an eye and see what does their sort of next private round look like because the most obvious answer is they raise a big private round and then that is sort of a stepping stone. Maybe six or 12 months later, they go public. And if you put it in perspective in terms of what they might look to raise in that next private round, our colleague Steve did some work on recent tech IPOs that we talked about on liquidity last week. And if you look at just Pinterest, Uber, Lyft, and Peloton... So IPOs all in the last year, the four of them raised an average of $3.2 billion at their IPO. And Uber was the highest. I think they were around $8 billion in primary. So I would expect to see DoorDash do a multi-billion dollar, probably private capital raise ahead of this direct listing, uh, assuming that's the route that they eventually go. But they're definitely going to have to raise, I think, a couple billion dollars at least going into that. And that leads me to my question, Gina. I'd love to get your perspective on, as you think about investors looking at these sort of pre-IPO or entrees to what eventually becomes a direct listing. Traditionally, buy-side investors are always looking for that IPO pop, which is part of the problem and why people are looking for direct listings. But what kind of return do you think an investor that invests in a private round ahead of a direct listing will be looking for? The return profile has shifted away from IPO, as you mentioned. And you know, 15 years ago, that's where you can make money is owning these on IPO. But just since the private markets have become so vibrant and companies are staying private longer, that window gets shifted. So I think that is an investor thinks about investing in later stage type of companies. I think this kind of two to three X return for the latest stage companies, I think that that's a reasonable benchmark. You know, it's not early stage venture, which for a fund, you're kind of shooting for kind of a 7x kind of a return. But I still believe that you can have multiple times returns. And I think that really this will emerge to be a sweet spot of investing. And the part that may be surprising is there's been a lot of focus on late stage investing. And the surprising part may be the language about emerge as if it hasn't happened already. But I think that there is still a tremendous amount of value to be captured in the latest private companies or latest stage private companies. So that's how we think about it. We think the trap in the markets is the IPO. And then we've done work around other curves in some investing in public companies that have been around for a little bit in different phases of their business when to capture 
kind of reaccelerating growth. But to answer your question, it's, I would say, two to three times. I'll take a slightly different swing at it, which I think you know, if you're an investor investing in this sort of last private round and you expect to hold as the company becomes public, maybe for a few years, I definitely think that two to three X is reasonable. I do think too, though, there's a reality that these late stage investors are probably thinking ahead to the direct listing. And I actually think a lot of them are probably going to be thinking like buy side investors that invest in IPOs. And they're going to expect to see some delta between what they pay and then six months later, what they see the direct listing come out at. They're going to want to see you know, something I think on the order of 20 to 50% difference in the price they pay. That's just my guess. And the reason that I think those numbers are right is if you look at Jay Ritter's data, the University of Florida professor who has done a lot on just IPO mispricings, he's shown that around, I think it's 18 or 20% is sort of the average mispricing over the last decade or so. And the work that we just did last week specific to tech IPOs in the last two years, the average mispricing was 38%. And so I think that to some degree, you know, yes, a company by doing a direct listing, they are avoiding that IPO mispricing in a literal sense as the issue goes out to investors in the market. But I do think the investors that invest ahead, right, the private investors that are getting ahead of the direct listing, they're still going to want to see some sort of return. So you can't totally avoid this mispricing that we talk about in the market. Someone still wants to capture that return for risking their capital as part of a direct listing. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that shakes out and maybe whether it's Airbnb or maybe DoorDash, kind of what those financings look like and then what the direct listings ultimately look like. There's also a distinction between, we talk about late stage, that there's some distinction about how late is late. Is it six months before the direct listing or IPO? Is it, you know, like this latest DoorDash round where they may be another round even before that? So, you know, there's some variability within that. I think from my perspective, this opportunity in later stage still remains one of the juiciest in investing. Just one last thought on the topic is it feels like there's a sort of new frontier where there's always new, I think, segments of capital allocation that emerge and then some of them die. But you know, right now it feels like there is this interest in direct listings where you can't raise primary money. At the same time, the companies, by and large, who are doing direct listings do still have a need for capital. So there is a problem in the market. You know, as venture capitalists, we talk about looking for problems in markets all the time. The problem is with a direct listing, you can't raise capital. So that's an opportunity for investors that are interested in that space. I think the question just becomes like, how much return can those investors that solve that problem for these companies reasonably expect? And then what do they look like? Are they going to be long-term holders? So will these sort of last rounds ahead of a direct listing? Are they going to be done by Fidelities and T. Rowe prices and other big funds like this who assumedly would then hold the stock longer term? Or will they look more like later stage venture investors? I know Dragoneer is a company that has done some work in this space and is sort of this hybrid private public fund. So I think the fun part is there's absolutely an opportunity there. And I think it's something we're going to continue to hammer on on liquidity because that is what we are getting very excited about. Before we move on, on top of that, there's another piece. It's probably not for today's edition, but the piece about how these companies that are approaching direct listings build their research support and effective way to kind of shepherd the company along as they go through different transitions in the business model and properly educate the public markets and 
that is a measurable change around these direct listings that I don't think it's talked about as, as much as it should. I'm glad you brought up and we'll use that to create some tension for a future episode of liquidity because that is a topic that as former sell side analysts, we have a lot of perspective on. And I think actually we'll probably do maybe an entire episode about just how that might play out. So more to come on that front. Let's shift to our last two topics though, Gene. One is a really great venture exit, which is PayPal bought Honey this week, $4 billion. I mean, obviously it's a a great venture outcome. They paid just for a little bit of perspective. At that valuation, Honey had about 17 million MAUs. This is something that we talked about at Loop. You know, it felt like that's a huge number. It's $235 per MAU. To put in perspective, WhatsApp, when Facebook bought them, was in the mid-40s. Instagram, I think, was like 30, which just looks like an absolute bargain now. And Facebook, even right now, is around, I think, 230. So very close to what PayPal paid for Honey. And Facebook obviously generates 25 or $30 per user per year. What do you make of the price here for Honey and kind of what it means for venture exits right now? I think it is representative of... If you have a unique angle on a big vision, there's a massive opportunity in terms of creating value. And in the case of Honey, essentially, it's doing something unique. They built, again, it's nascent 17 million users, but they built something around kind of jumping much further ahead in the, the purchasing process. Right now, PayPal typically competes right at the checkout box. And so this is around price and product discovery is what Honey helps with. So, you know, getting in front of that Apple Pay or American Express button is the goal here. And so when I think about, I mean, it's the classic thing that every company ultimately wants to do is do something that someone else is not doing. But that was one perspective is it actually makes sense. Our first reaction was this is too high, what PayPal paid. And then as we debated it more, the pendulum kind of came back and we recognized that if they really want to jump in front of the funnel. That's a a massive opportunity. The last numbers I've seen around Venmo is 40 million monthly active users. So PayPal has 300 million. I expect that the number, I don't know what Venmo had before it was acquired by PayPal, but I would expect the number of Honey users to jump dramatically in the next year. Yeah. I think the strategic value here is huge for PayPal. Like you said, I think getting ahead of the transaction could really unlock a lot of value for PayPal in terms of getting more people to use PayPal to check out. You know, the other thing I would mention just from a venture exit perspective and what I thought or what I took away was themes matter and just fintech in general is on fire right now. And I think sometimes just being in the right theme at the right time can give you these really massive exits. I think scooters, obviously, a year ago was the super hot theme and there weren't exits necessarily, a few small ones, but there were really big valuations in the private markets. And so I think hitting on the right themes and as you think about building a portfolio, building a portfolio of maybe a few different themes, hoping that you hit on one that ends up being the hot theme 
when exits are happening is part of, I think, a good venture portfolio building strategy. So yeah, fintech, I don't know when it stops, but it just feels like anything related to fintech, whether it's in the public markets, you know, valuations for Visa and MasterCard have been a couple of the best performing stocks over the last few years or in the private markets with companies like, I think Chime, I think recently was one of the big unicorn financings that we've seen. So it's a really hot space. Shifting to the last topic, Gene, Excel invested $200 million into one password. One password is password management software, software we use at Loop. We love it. And the thing I think that's really interesting about one password is it was self-funded for 14 years before this investment. And so with this move to profitability that we keep hearing about, do you think more companies try to self-fund? I think uh, they will try. I think it will be difficult for them to self-fund. And the benefit of what one password had is they found enough oxygen around product market fit early enough. I remember uh, you mentioned that we love the product here at Loop. That is true. I've used it for many years. When I first started using it, I thought I'm not going to pay a subscription to manage my passwords. It felt like I was getting uh, nickel and dimed. Now I'm happy to do it because I feel like it's a productivity tool. I've got, I think, like 140 passwords in there. And so when I think about the concept of self-funding and will more companies want to do that, I think most companies would want to self-fund if they can do it. They want to do it. Unfortunately, the reality of the cost to build something that gets market fit, that's able to create this wonderful flywheel of revenue, it's just so rare that I think most companies are going to need to spend more than the founders have to get to that point. Yep. I think the last thought I would add is something I thought was noteworthy of the round was two-thirds of the round was secondary. So insider selling, which I think makes a lot of sense after 14 years of self-funding. But what I do think is regardless of this self-funding trend, the move to profitability should, in theory, create less of a demand for companies to raise capital through primary because they should be closer to profitable and not be burning as much cash as we're seeing now. But I don't think that will change investor demand for access to these companies. And so the outcome, the logical outcome there is that if investor demand remains and company necessity for capital declines, the only other option for these investors to get access is to start buying secondary, like we saw here for 1Password. And I think that's another thing, you know, why we started the Liquidity Podcast is secondary, it feels like, is going to be more and more of this story of the evolution of liquidity for venture-backed companies and kind of be more on a spectrum in terms of binary, where right now companies are either private and totally illiquid or they're public and totally liquid. I think we start to see this world where there's this in-between where whether it's tokenization or second markets or whatever, but we get more liquidity through secondary means. And again, that's something we're going to continue to talk about on liquidity. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. 